Welcome to CCI Insights, a periodic podcast for CCI members from members, retain resources and staff. We hope you enjoy the latest episode. If you ever have any ideas for future content or people you'd like us to talk to, give us a shout out. Just contact one of the staff at CCIA. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Well, welcome Jeff Boozy of Carlton. I think I pronounced that correct, didn't I, Jeff? Uh, yes, you did. Absolutely. Good, good. I know um, you had said the, the last name. It's actually spelled B-U-Y-S-S-E. I think I murdered it the first time we <laughs> talked, um, and you you uh, nicely corrected me. The last name is actually Belgian, which uh, is, is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the home of the, uh, the great fictional uh, crime uh, solver, Hercule Poirot, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Yes, sir. You are absolutely right. And yes, it, it is a it is a name of, of Flemish descent. And yeah. My uh, my great grandfather uh, came to the United States in 1895 uh, on the boat to Ellis Island, and uh, uh, but, you know, obviously been here ever since. But you're right. My last name is not exactly phonetic, so the first time yeah. I had it, uh, I, I certainly don't hold any grudges. Anybody doesn't get it right the first time. <laughs> I I appreciate that. By the way, I should comment the. The uh, my girls got to look up their ma- maternal great grandparents uh, manifest when they came through Ellis, and it was it was really one of the neatest experiences they had in New York City was to go over to Ellis Island and be able to look that up on the computer there. So to see you know both uh, great grandmother and great grandfather and their names in, in the manifest is pretty neat. I, I I have to agree when I I happened to find the manifest with with August Boozy, who was my great grandfather, on it. It just it gives you a little bit of a chill to realize, you know, that you're almost visualizing, uh, you know, obviously the beginning of the family tree. So that is very neat. Yeah, it was really, it, it's great. It's great. So you have an interesting path to uh, Carlton and it's interest. And I will say, uh, while that theme is common for almost every guest we have, I mean, I started out in systems programming, building systems in the insurance industry for what is now um, QBE. Uh, out here in the Midwest, uh, but you have a, a little bit more circuitous route, uh, kind of being down in South for a while. T- tell us a- about where you started and how you landed up in South Bend at Carleton. It, it, it's very, it's a little bit I- I- ironic, I think. I think when I look at it, but I had spent time working for a company called National Mobile Concrete, which is out of Bering Springs, Michigan. And National Mobile specialized in nuclear concrete for nuclear plants. Oh, wow. So I had gone to St. Francisville, Louisiana in the early 1980s and got involved in the quality control end of concrete. And again, obviously, the specifications for, for a nuclear plant are very, very specific, very, very tight and very heavily regulated. So so had a lot of uh, uh, white-shirted, white-hard-headed nuclear regulatory commission people looking over my shoulder the whole time I'm doing tests and all those. So that, you know, that was a little bit nerve wracking, but I was very much into the quality control of testing concrete. When I decided to quit traveling all over the country, got married while I was in Louisiana, and we decided to move back here to South Bend. So I started looking for employment. And it just so happened that Pat Ruskowski, the CEO of Carleton, is someone that I had known most of my life. So I sent a resume to Carleton. They happened to have an opening in quality control. And I had a minor in finance while I was at Indiana University. So 
basically got an interview, basically, you know, went through that process. Not that concrete had anything to do with consumer credit <laughs> calculations, but uh, uh, I guess the rest of they say is history. I've now been at Carlton. This is my 36th year since 1985. Oh, wow. And uh, been a fascinating path. Uh, uh, because what we do is very, very much a specialty niche within the consumer credit industry. There aren't many companies that do what Carlton does, doing the credit math to supply disclosures for credit calculations. So it is very much a unique setting, but it's also a setting. And this is, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit of, of what we talk to prospective uh employees about during an interview process, you have the opportunity to become good at something that not, that very few people okay, have that opportunity. So, so mm-hmm. it is kind of a, an opportunity to become a bit of an expert at something that few people are. Right, right. And you, and you're now, I mean, you've, you've worked your way up to uh, vice president of compliance services at, at Carleton. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I, I, I have, and that is my title. Uh, uh, again, titles can be a little bit nebulous at times. Uh, mm-hmm. In my time at Carleton, I've done everything from you know sweeping the sweeping the shipping room floor to unloading semis uh, uh, and those kind of things. Because in the beginning, Carleton was a bit of a small company, and you pitched in and did everything. But I started my career as what we call a chart checker, and a lot of people in the consumer credit industry remember Carleton rate charts. That was Mm -hmm. our primary product in the 1970s into the 1980s before electronic media came along. And I basically checked numbers on printed rate charts all day long. So, uh, again, in those days, had an HP financial calculator, a pencil, and a quad pad. So, interesting tools compared to what we have today. Yeah, no kidding. Well, at least you weren't using a slide rule, so you're kind of one step ahead of that. No, and, but, and, uh, but actually, Carlton's yeah. founder, Joseph Carlton Pitts, was an engineer originally at the Bendix Corporation in South Bend. And that's, uh, that was his claim to fame in starting Carlton was he was doing credit calculations with a slide rule. Oh, wow. OK. My father is an electrical engineer, and I, he, he used to talk about his slide rule and yeah. his pocket protector. And by the way, <laughs> a small world. We didn't talk about this. I have a Bendix Volvo radio in a 1967 Volvo sitting in the garage. And I wonder if that's the type of thing that uh, the Bendix Corporation, um, I think they produced, I wonder if it's the same firm ultimately that produced these radios for uh, AM radios back in the day, maybe even for domestic vehicles, something like that. I I wouldn't be surprised. Their primary business was brakes, the Bendix brakes. Okay. And those type of things. They did aircraft brakes and all those kind of things, but I think they branched out into a lot of places. So I I wouldn't be surprised. So Carlton has, um, you know, as you said, really a formidable force with a very specialized set of um, uh, offers. You get you folks are located in South Bend, really close. It looks like to the Notre Dame Stadium. So is it is it a is everybody going to the games there or parking in the Carlton parking lot or how does that work? Yeah, it's actually a a very neat uh, ancillary addition to Carlton employment. Our offices today 
<coughs> are at a, a location called Eddy Street Commons, and the University of Notre Dame campus is literally right across the street, right across Angela Boulevard. So one of the perks is on game day that we can continue to park in the parking garage. So if you happen to be going to the game or just going yeah. out to tailgate and socialize, you can park in the parking garage and only block away from where the stadium is. So so that is a very, very nice perk uh, for Carlton employees. Comes in handy too. We do a fair amount of having clients in uh, for football games and those type of things. So it makes it very easy to access everything and, and be able to get out with that huge crowd that they get for football games in Notre Dame. Nice, nice. So, at, at, and then at Carlton, from a business perspective, I know we've talked a little bit about how these these calculations are are pretty complex. Um, and you know, I'm sure you you probably have clients and or regulators that might think that's a it's kind of like almost a simple interest type of calculation. Could you talk a little bit about what what Carlton does, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. You know, what's interesting about consumer credit mathematics is that it's got to fit within the context of the properties of consumer credit transactions. And what I mean by that is the comment I get a lot as I travel around speak on Carlton's behalf is uh, I hear folks say, oh, yeah, you guys, you guys just do the math. <laughs> well, if, uh, you know, I, I characterize it this way. If it was just math, a, a, a mid-sized company like Carlton, we have, I don't know, 33 to 35 employees on on probably any given day uh, are working, but that a, that a medium-sized company in South Bend, Indiana, probably would have been usurped a long time ago by a bigger entity if it was simple math. Mm -hmm. the, the key here is that credit is regulated at a state level when it comes to, as I say, how much you can charge. And the Texas Finance Code distinctly different from the Indiana Credit Code, let's say, which is distinctly different from the Michigan Credit Reform Act. So every state has very specific nuances to how they regulate credit. So it's not simply the mathematics. That is a big part of it. But it's tailoring those mathematics to the concepts of what is considered compliance according to a state statute. And that has always been one of Carlton's strengths is that we have a very good working knowledge of all those nuances and all those specifics that go along with how to stay compliant if I'm extending credit in a particular state. And again, that branches out into all 50 states. It, well, I, I should I'm, I'm a bit remiss here because we really appreciate the support as as members we get from your team at, at Carlton, um, both in the you know the financial aspect, but then engagement. I know you and I talked about taking advantage of that even more. Um, how so? I, I and I'm hopeful too that what we do at CCIA is kind of is keep your team abreast of what's around the corner, what we're finding in terms of our environmental scan. How do you folks keep track of all this stuff? Do you have a database or a system? Or you know we have databases. We have not today. We have a lot of subscription services, okay? okay? But it's still like everybody. It's a challenge when you have 50 state legislators meeting and they're passing various levels of bills that affect credit or credit insurance or debt protection. So historically, some of our best information comes from our customers because very often our customers have boots on the ground. They have right. somebody at the state legislator 
What we need well, from our standpoint that we get is, hey, they're working on a bill in Wisconsin and we think it's going to do this. And once we get a bill number, then my team can go in and take a look at that bill, look at the language, see what it addresses, you know, see what the specifics are. And that's really the key. But there's no doubt that trying to stay compliant in today's environment, the way things are constantly changing, you know, that, that, that's a challenge for us every day, just like it is for every creditor out there and every credit insurance carrier or debt protection provider. So we try to look at ourselves as someone that augments the compliance department of our customers. You know, we don't come in and dictate compliance, but we right. are a supplement and we try to augment compliance by dealing with that part that we do well, which is these are what the calculations are telling you. And that's one less thing than that, a, let's say, a lender's compliance department has to be concerned with. Well, we have, uh, if we look environmentally, the states, you know, we have kind of the usual suspects in the states that have been tinkering with the, for example, APR calculation. New Mexico has been a perennial just about. And, and um, thankfully this year, um, we were able to work with some of our members and others to um, prevent the, uh, our, our lovely all-in APR uh, calculation uh, but it does seem, especially with the change in Washington, that the pace of change in the states has picked up. I think the, the some of the state legislators is seemingly seem emboldened to, um, you know, combat predatory lending and then invariably target payday, which pulls in a whole bunch of other loans. Could you talk a little about the, the, the all in APR phenomenon and, and that kind of the deviation from the original purpose? Absolutely. You know, we, we've talked in the past, Tom, that 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 36 percent number, one of the things that I always question, that 36 percent has kind of become a magical value. And, and what is the origin of that and what does it represent? And, and, and I, I personally struggle with that part uh, a bit from times. But but overall, knowing like at Carleton, what we know about the nuts and bolts of a truth and lending annual percentage rate, it just appears that measuring APR to regulate how much you charge is a very poor tool for that particular regulation. The original purpose of truth and lending was simply as a shopping tool for consumers. You know, it was meant to simply give the consumer the, the, the ability to look at car dealer A and they're charging me 14% and car dealer B, they're charging me 15%. Oh, A is a better deal for me. And it really was that simplistic. Now, unfortunately, it has morphed over time to the APR, the truth and lending APR, simply to become more of a working tool. And, and I think that really takes it out of context. You know, one way to look at it, let's say you take a, a small loan. You know, there, there was something uh, I noticed on the news lately that, you know, most Americans don't even have $1,000 for a car repair. So if we're talking small loans, short-term loans, and those are the kind that have the most volatility as far as the APR and what the number is. You know, if you take on an $800 loan for six months at a 36% interest rate, you know, many of the advocates push that 36%, oh my gosh, that's just so exorbitant. 
But the finance charge on that particular loan, $800 for six months, is only $86. Once you take that $86 and allocate part of it to pay rent, to pay salaries, basically overhead, utilities, and all the other things that go into running a business, you know, the nominal profit on a small loan probably isn't so exorbitant. So that's right. one reason, even though the rate looks very, very high, the nominal dollar amount okay, may indeed be very reasonable for services extended and particularly the risk extended with those type of loans. So, so I really believe that, that the truth lending APR is a poor measurement of, of how to, or a poor tool for trying to decide how to regulate how much you know, should be charged by lenders. I completely agree with you, especially as you get into smaller, as you point out, smaller lending. I think a government organization had uh, evaluated that it's approximately, uh, what, $2,600 is the break-even point for a 36% yes. APR. Yeah. And yeah. I know our counsel at, at Hudson Cook, Michael Benoit, would talk about the APR really in its design is a fiction created by Congress. Now, it's true it was designed to um, help consumers comparison shop for like kinds of credit. Uh, but it, it, interestingly, he did, he says that it's really a fiction. I mean, ultimately, people are just looking at fees and the interest rate and things like that, right? Yeah, and, and the issue is simply, you know, Michael is exactly right in that the APR was created by the Federal Reserve Board to serve a very simple purpose. You know, truth and lending is a disclosure law, meaning truth and lending doesn't care if the APR is 781%, but I have to disclose that accurately right, right. to the consumer. And that is the basis for it. The problem is there's a disconnect between business practices. And, and again, at Carlton, we deal with this on a daily basis between applying the interest rate for business purposes and then trying to measure it with the annual percentage rate. You know, one of the real uh, uh, seismic phenomenons in our industry, in the consumer credit industry over the last 30 years, has been the shift from pre-computed transactions. When I started at Carleton in 1985, I would say 80 to 90 percent of our clients did pre-computed transactions. It was the norm. Today, the industry has, has shifted to what's called simple interest contracts which I call interest bearing. Yeah. But one of the characteristics of a simple interest contract is daily interest accrual. So yeah. now, unlike periodic interest accrual, which well, again was the norm back in the mm -hmm. day, well, guess what? The truth lending APR was basically created under the idea of a single way to compute it. Okay, now that has been unfortunately diluted a little bit over time yeah. with some things. Yeah. But the bottom line is, you know, the actuarial method as outlined in Appendix J to Regulation Z uses what's called the federal calendar. Okay. And that okay. is a periodic approach, meaning a month is one twelfth of a year. Every month is measured equally. Doesn't matter if it's okay. January, February, March. Right. Well, when you take a rate, when you take 18% and apply it on a daily basis, you get a completely different profile of interest earnings. 
But that is the business part of how a creditor wants to do business. Consequently, an 18% APR, depending on what month it originates in, can provide a truth in lending annual percentage rate by the actuarial method of anywhere from 1797 to 1805. So okay. you've got a fairly wide range there. And right. there is, uh, I call it an urban legend that developed from a simpler time in the industry that, gee, if I don't have any fees in my truth and lending finance charge, my interest rate, my APR are going to be the same thing. Well, they're going okay. to be close, but they're not going to be identical. Okay. And that is a very, very hard thought to dislodge. Again, our support people at Carleton deal with this on almost a daily basis because it's become part of the training regimen for a lot of creditors. Oh, we don't have any fees yet. The APR should be exactly what the interest rate is. And the issue obviously comes from a regulatory standpoint. If you're operating at a maximum rate, meaning 18% is from the, uh, the most I can uh, charge from a statutory standpoint, then it makes a difference if my outcome, my, uh, you know, what is my effective rate? Is it 18 something? Does that cause a problem? Right. Part of what we help clients evaluate. But again, separating state how much you can charge from, from truth and lending. Uh, uh, again, sometimes I need a pretty big uh, pry bar to try to dislodge those two things for clients and, and, and separate them because they really are separate entities. No kidding. And well, could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, oh, uh, the, the calculation audit service that you get? Oh, absolutely. Provide? One of the things we've been able to do, you know, our, our primary service these days, and I characterize it as a service, not a product, is a calculation engine. You know, basically, uh, you dump all the ingredients in and we give you all the disclosures you need to fill out a, a credit contract, whether it be a loan, whether it be a sale, motor vehicle sale, doesn't matter. And we give you that. That is our primary service. But we've been able to leverage our expertise in the consumer credit math to offer validation services, what we call a calculation audit. So what clients do is they will send us a, a, a sampling of loans. Okay. And we agree. Is it 500? Is it 1,000? Is it 2,000? And then we agree on here are the parameters for this particular jurisdiction. Let's just say we're operating under the Texas Finance Code and I'm making a loan under Section 342. So we will work with the client to agree what those parameters are, the key parameter from a charge standpoint being the calendar that's applied. You know, generally in Texas, it's called the scheduled installment earnings method, which is a daily interest type accrual. Every day between each scheduled payment accrues interest for every calendar day that exists. So the annual rate is applied that way. So we will work up the rules. We will run the data through and, and help the customer see that for these 500 loans, okay, these were appear to be compliant. These may be suspect. So mm. we do a state maximum charge analysis. We also do a truth in lending annual percentage rate analysis. And we will show the variance between here is the precise APR according to truth in lending rules. Here with the disclosed APR, here's the variance. And we take that same path with the maximum charge portion. So we feel like it gives customers an ability to one, if they suspect they have an issue, we can help them see it in output so they can address it. 
sometimes when a lender is going to buy a portfolio, they may send us a portfolio of loans beforehand to say, I want to make sure these are compliant according to state rules. Okay. And we will go ahead and do that. But where I think it's really valuable, Tom, is in the indirect part of the market, because very often lenders are buying contracts from a variety of sellers out there, retailers, and they work on, if there's eight retailers, they probably have eight different systems. One of the challenges with consumer credit math is that there is not a big book of, here's how you implement credit calculations. So the details, it all comes down to the details, the granular portion, and how you address all those granular things as to, let's say, what payment you end up with. And that's really the key. So so we try to bring all that into alignment for our customers. And, And again, we work with the compliance department. We all agree. These are the rules we are going to perform the calculation audit under. And then we provide them with results, you know, along with commentary on what it is they're looking at. So that has been a, a very, very popular service that has grown each year. We started doing it as a service back, I, I want to believe, in 2012. Not too long after okay. the creation of the CFPB, right. the creation of the CFPB created a certain amount of anxiety in the industry about compliance. So, so you know, the time was really ripe to start start addressing some of these issues. And I want to say we have done somewhere between three three and four hundred audits since the since 2012. So again, it's becoming much uh, a much bigger part of what we do in my area from the compliance service. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's fantastic. And that's that's really a really great observation, too. You know, with the formation of a group like the CFPB or regulatory changes become opportunities. And believe it or not, uh, Jeff, our session is near our end. Uh, Time flies in in the podcast. I really appreciate you taking out the time of your busy schedule to talk about, well, yourself and Carlton and the issues you're seeing out there. Uh, and again, we do appreciate very much the support from Carlton, both financially and, and from an engagement perspective. So appreciate your time today, Jeff. Tom, you're very welcome. As I said, you know, we've had a long relationship with CCIA. I think it dates back into the early 1970s. So we are always pleased to be able to support whatever the association is trying to do to improve our industry. Thanks so much, Jeff. Take All care. Right. All right. Bye, Tom. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the CCIA Insights podcast. Again, if you have ideas, please send them our way and be sure to share this with your team. Thank you.